It's Monday, July 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We are all looking forward to the end game for COVID-19, when the spread of the virus slows down significantly or stops altogether because enough people have immunity to it. Whether it's by vaccine or enough people catching it, we are trying to get to the point of herd immunity. But the math to get there is tricky, and the variables used to calculate it keep making it a moving target. Kevin Hartnett, senior math writer at Quantum Magazine, joins us for how the population can achieve herd immunity. Next, from the beginning of the pandemic, and despite calls from governors across the country for a unified national response, the plan has largely been every state for itself. From obtaining your own PPE and setting up your own testing and contact tracing programs, states have been desperate for federal support. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Finally, the culture war over face coverings continues, and it is a growing problem for retail and service workers across the country who are yelled at and sometimes assaulted for asking patrons to wear masks. They have become the primary enforcers for social distancing guidelines inside restaurants and shops, even as some think wearing a mask infringes on their social rights. Emily Davies, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how anti-maskers put businesses on edge. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in born different. We develop differently over the course of our lifetimes. That's a quote from a researcher named Gabriela Gomez, who appeared in my recent story. These differences are, you know, genetic differences in our cells that affect kind of our susceptibility, but it's also things like density of nose hairs has an effect on our likelihood of getting infected. Joining us now is Kevin Hartnett, senior math writer at Quanta Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Absolutely, Oscar. Thank you for having me on. We're all waiting for the day when the coronavirus pandemic is over or significantly starts to slow down. We kind of already know what the end game for that will be. It will be once the population has enough herd immunity that transmission of this really slows down or stops completely. Obviously, we'll need a vaccine to help out with that or just enough people in the population need to have contracted the virus and gotten over it. But there's a lot of tricky math when it comes to herd immunity for COVID-19. Kevin, help us out with this story. So herd immunity, as you said, is the percentage of a population that needs to have antibodies to a disease to prevent that disease from spreading further. And it seems like a very simple calculation. There's like a formula that anyone could do on a piece of paper on their desk that tells you what the herd immunity threshold is. It's one minus one over R naught, and R naught is the number of people on average that each infected person infects. So it's a very simple, simple formula to work out for COVID-19. The kind of the best kind of estimate is about 2.5 for R naught that each infected person infects 2.5 other people. So that if you plug that into the formula, 2.5, that gives you a herd immunity threshold of 60%. But that is a very naive, simple calculation. And there's, in fact, kind of a lot of complexity in the population that makes that number, um, I don't know, there's just a lot more kind of uncertainty about what that number actually is. And it has to do with differences between people and how susceptible they are to getting infected. And it has to do with differences in places, how there are some places like cities and nursing homes where the disease spreads much more easily and the herd immunity threshold is therefore higher. And other places, perhaps rural places with lower population density where the disease spreads, it's more difficult for it to spread. And so the threshold is lower. So there actually is a lot of nuance to what at first blush appears to be a very straightforward calculation. 
So tell us about some of these other variables. I know there's a heterogeneity of susceptibility, and you were talking about that a little bit ago, the different variables that cause somebody to be more likely or less likely to get infected. How does this throw the number for herd immunity off? The first is when we do vaccine campaigns and we estimate how much of the population we need to vaccinate to guarantee herd immunity, we assume that every person in a population is equally likely to get and spread the disease. And so that's kind of a naive calculation. And with COVID-19, you might come to say 60% of the population needs this vaccine to prevent the disease from spreading rapidly again. But as soon as you stop to think about it, you realize, well, no, not everyone in a population is equally likely to get sick and spread the disease. People with compromised immune systems, more likely to get the disease. People in kind of high touch professions, um, certainly healthcare workers, maybe bus drivers, grocery store workers, more likely to get the disease than someone who is working from home. Someone who lives in an apartment building, more likely maybe to get it than someone who lives out on his own in the woods. So it's kind of intuitively obvious to us that not everyone is equally likely to get the disease. And these differences between people are what you refer to as the heterogeneity of susceptibility. There are even other factors that are kind of maybe less obvious. I mean, we're just born different. We develop differently over the course of our lifetimes. That's a quote from a researcher named Gabriela Gomez, who appeared in my recent story. These differences are, you know, genetic differences in our cells that affect kind of our susceptibility. But it's also things like density of nose hairs has an effect on our likelihood of getting infected. And we all know people who get sick all the time. And we all know people who are like, well, I haven't had a cold in 10 years. So I mean, we kind of know these differences are out there. And this heterogeneity in, in individual characteristics are what make it so that it's in fact, not everyone's equally likely to get the disease, both due to their behaviors and things about kind of their body. And typically, as you said, this heterogeneity lowers the herd immunity threshold. It kind of makes it harder for the disease to spread than you might naively think. It means that kind of a smaller percentage of the population needs to be infected or have antibodies in order to control the pandemic in this case. What's going to get us to that herd immunity so that we can finally be done with this? There's just so much uncertainty about COVID-19, including what the herd immunity threshold for a wildly spreading virus or naturally spreading virus as opposed to vaccine immunity. So there's just a lot of uncertainty about many aspects of this disease, including what the naturally spreading herd immunity threshold is. And that certainly is a reason to be very cautious in kind of how we approach policy around this. One epidemiologist I spoke to from my my recent article likened it to playing, you know, Russian roulette. If we kind of take a herd immunity, quote, strategy, it's like kind of playing Russian roulette with this extremely deadly thing that once it's kind of out there, it's like very hard to control. So the bottom line is, A, there's a lot of uncertainty and that weighs in favor of a, a lot of caution. Now, as a matter of kind of what the threshold might actually be, researchers are attempting to tease it out. So we've got 60% is the kind of standard naive estimate. Most epidemiologists I talked to were kind of willing to say that the the naturally occurring threshold is lower than that. Maybe 40, 50% was what most people told me. But there are also some studies out there now that are putting that number even lower, including one by a researcher in Europe named Gabriela Gomez, who I just mentioned, who thinks that the herd immunity threshold is probably around 20%, in which case some of these places we just talked about, Madrid, New York, Lombardy, may already have reached it. So what does that mean for where we go from here? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see in the fall 
are those places susceptible to second waves? I mean, they clearly had first waves that have clearly died down, but people are still doing it like a ton of distancing. We haven't gone back to normal. So it'd be interesting to see in those places, can second waves really take off if people are doing more normal things like, you know, sending all their kids back to school or going into the office? So that's certainly one source of uncertainty or one thing we'll be watching for. And then as for kind of other places that, well, I mean, the, the number of places that have not been badly hit is certainly shrinking by the day, unfortunately. But well, I, don't know, I think the bottom line is, is getting to herd immunity naturally is a chancy and deadly proposition. We know the numbers out of New York, tens of thousands of deaths to maybe get to that naturally occurring herd immunity threshold. And we don't want to go through that everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a far too painful consequence to imagine, in which case, you know, the order of the day is try and hunker down and wait it out as best we can until we can achieve herd immunity through a vaccine. Kevin Hartnett, senior math writer at Quanta Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. I think they need uh, more more of everything, more more PPE, more testing, and uh, and more medical uh, support. Some of their hospitals are getting overloaded. Uh, they're running out of uh, the capacity in their ICU beds. Joining us now is Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Alice. Absolutely. As we make our way through the coronavirus pandemic, I know that it's kind of been this everyone for themselves mentality when it comes to how we respond to this, at, at least when we're considering the federal response and individual state responses. The Trump mm-hmm. administration has largely left this all up to the states to handle it the way they want to. And and for good cause on, on certain parts, you know, every state is different. The, every state is impacted differently. So the responses are going to be different. But there's a lot of things that states are crying out for for help with certain things, setting up testing, setting up contact tracing. There's a lot of governors that are asking for some type of unified federal response, and they're just not getting it. Alice, tell us a little bit more about this. Well, you're absolutely right that this has almost entirely been left up to the states. The Trump administration has described their role as sort of just backup, and they want the states to lead. And like you said, that makes sense from one perspective in that different states are impacted differently. But what you have right now is this massively inefficient system where each state is doing the same work, building these same systems from scratch to test and trace the spread of the virus and manage all of this when the state next door is having to spend resources doing the same thing. And they say it would be so much more efficient and better and we would be able to get a handle on the virus if the federal government provided a national plan and strategy that states could then adapt to their reality on the ground. I mean, one uh, example that you noted in your article as well is everybody was looking toward these contact tracing apps to really help in the effort. You need thousands of contact tracers for each state just to really manage the spread of it. And a lot of states have even given up already on using the apps. Obviously, there was a lot of people not maybe wanting to participate and things like that. But yeah, Mm -hmm. every state was working on something different when there could have been one big program being worked out, at least it would have helped. We would have known if it was going to work or not a lot sooner. You know, there's a lot of things that could be said for that, but that's one example of where every state for themselves really isn't going to work on that front. Absolutely. And both with those apps and with other things like air travel, it all breaks down when you remember that people are still moving between states. And so if each state has their own separate siloed system, 
and they have to figure out how to talk to each other and exchange data. It's just chaos right now. It's apps. You had Apple and Google step up and create this technology that states could then use to make these apps. Like you also said, a lot of people are hesitant to use it. They see it as a violation of privacy to have their location tracked. The apps are supposed to tell you if you are around somebody and were potentially exposed to the virus. So it, it's just a mess. And the, the real frustration for a lot of people is that here we are many, many months into this pandemic, and we knew we needed these national strategies months ago. We endured a very painful lockdown, you know, businesses closed, everyone stayed at home, and that time could have been used to come up with some of these federal plans, and it wasn't. From the president, we just kind of hear the overarching, hey, we should do it this way, but there's no follow through, which is the unfortunate thing. That's why a lot of people are dinging him. Uh, you, it's reflective in the polls that the handling of this pandemic has not gone so smoothly. People said the messaging really needs to come from the top. I mean, you, you can imagine an alternate universe that we would have a federal government that would be creating and running ads on TV all the time, emphasizing mask wearing and social distancing and hand washing and all of these things. And it would be this real national campaign that states could then adapt and amplify on the ground. Instead, you have these local health departments that are extremely underfunded and understaffed already. While they're trying to do everything else to manage the pandemic, they're trying to also make these videos to get the information out to the community. And so they're saying not only is the federal government not providing that clear messaging, they fault the president for actively undermining it. You know, when states were locked down, the president was tweeting that they should be liberated. The president up until recently said that he would not wear a mask and mocked to those who did. So there's just there's just been a lot of mixed messaging that has led to people not taking the virus seriously in some instances and not being clear on how transmission happens and how to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. Alice Miranda Olsen, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. But essentially what we'll do is we'll come and educate people, talk to them, let them know what's going on, let them know that the store requires people to wear a mask, so we have to ask people to wear a mask to come into the store. If the person refuses, we'll have to ask them to leave the store. Right. And at that point, if they refuse to leave the store, then they would be considered trespassing. Joining us now is Emily Davies, reporter focusing on small businesses for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've been monitoring how America is reopening, how businesses are getting back. Obviously, we've seen a spike in coronavirus cases across the country, which is prompting a lot of states and counties to roll back some of that reopening and and still stricter rules. Uh, Masks continue to be one of these things. I think you mentioned it's a part of the coronavirus culture war over face coverings. It continues to be a very polarizing thing. But for these businesses that are trying to get back to business, that are trying to reopen and trying to make money for themselves and families or employees, everything, there's a lot of rules that they have to follow. Face coverings is a rule in a lot of places, but still we'll see patrons trying to go in there without a face mask. And it creates this really sticky situation for employees, the managers trying to enforce those rules, trying to make people happy. It's kind of a mess all over the place. 
Emily, tell us about it because you spoke to a lot of different businesses and how they've been going through this. First, I want to say that the vast majority of business owners in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area say that most of their interactions with customers are very pleasant. People wear masks. They practice social distancing. But many of the bartenders I spoke to, restaurant owners I interviewed, said that at least once a day, they are asking customers to please wear a mask, to pull it up over their nose because it's not enough to have it around their chin or even just covering their mouths. And sometimes these exchanges escalate and pose a real risk to people who are trying to keep their businesses afloat and serve people for the first time in a long time indoors. And so there are a few particularly notable incidents in D.C. and its neighboring suburbs in the last week. One was at a restaurant in D.C. where a customer threw plexiglass at a worker and employee who asked them to wear a mask. Another was at a coffee house in Old Town, Alexandria, where a man refused to wear a mask, put a mask over his eyes, sat at the owner of the coffee shop, and later came back and threw chicken and rice at her window. So these employees and these owners of local establishments are scared to come to work oftentimes because they're worried about being exposed to the coronavirus or worse, assaulted because of the restrictions. What are these business owners, what kind of tactics are they using to keep the maskless customers out or to even confront them and say, hey, you know, you should be wearing it properly? So what I heard from the vast majority of people I spoke to is they pull up CDC guidelines or restaurant association guidelines and point to official policy to explain that this is not their decision. These people are not trying to make their customers' lives harder. It's mandated that they do it this way and they are playing by the rules. So they try to take the anger and redirect it to the CDC or these umbrella organizations. And from what I've heard, sometimes it works and people back off, they leave or they do put on a mask. But, you know, in these rare instances, as you mentioned, it does escalate and they call the police. You did mention that sometimes police have been called. I know they're trying to de-escalate a lot of things. They don't really want to fine anybody for not wearing a mask. But so how have police responded to these types of calls when they do get them? I spoke with police departments in Maryland and Virginia and a bit with the police in D.C. And they all said, we do not want to arrest people. We do not want to cite people. We really want to de-escalate and basically use public education. That's the phrase that they use to explain how they address these incidents. That means really that they try to reason with the person refusing to wear a mask, explain why it's important and why it's inappropriate to harass a business owner for enforcing these policies. Emily Davies, reporter covering small businesses for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.